0: All right everybody, let's get ready for a just a great conversation today. I've asked my good friend Jim Path to come on the podcast. Jim, welcome to the Eternal Leadership Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, really glad to be here, John. So, oh, it was over 10 years ago now. I started right at 10 group, years ago. Yeah, right at 10 years ago. I started a group called Colorado Rough Riders which grew to I think it was over 200 CEOs showing up every month. And what we wanted to do, Jim, at the time was as as an entrepreneur and a business owner and running a company, there were so many things that were happening in the legislature that were affecting business. And every time that things got passed, it was a surprise to us. I'm like, okay, we need to come together as a business community and understand this. And we decided we were going to tackle more business issues than. Uh, some of the social issues. It was a very conservative group. And it was in the middle of that that we were looking at the political landscape, and I said, man, this is not right. We shouldn't. How are we electing people? How are Christians electing people that don't represent our values, biblical principles? I mean, we've all seen this in our culture, and our society. So we started the Colorado Faith and Freedom Coalition, and Jim and I got introduced and we started that together and it was just an amazing run and uh Jim uh after actually he's was focused on the family before that run the family uh was it the Family Action Council Colorado
1: Family Institute and Colorado Family Action was our uh, political arm yeah
0: political arm and then became chief of staff to two uh, amazing congressmen who were strong believers and now he's uh stepped back from that to start against nice podcast and what's the website also Jim uh, politics is politics isn't nice but here's something we're going to talk about because not only does this uh, come to play in the world of politics because we see it on the news every day but it's also now become in our culture as people of faith how do we actually go into an environment that could be or is actively adversarial to us and affect that environment versus, letting that environment affect us, right? We are supposed to be Christ ambassadors going out into these environments. So I can't think of anybody better, Jim, that's gone into the fight, into the deepest, grossest parts of the swamp. And you went in there as a light, you went in there as Christ ambassador, you made differences, but you also saw, you saw the good, the bad and the ugly of both people and situations. And so we're going to talk about how do we really live out our faith in a culture that oftentimes either feels like or is adversarial to us. But, you know, with that, Jim, I'd love for you to maybe share a little bit about kind of your background and your journey up till now. So
1: in college, and this, it's, it's interesting, back in 1984 it was. Uh, I got involved with something that ultimately led to you and I getting together on this Colorado Faith and Freedom Coalition thing. I was uh, really – I had come to Christ at 16 years old in 1981. When I got to college, I had just started going to Indiana University, and I really wanted to be involved in some way in this political realm. So my pastor at the time had recommended that I get involved in an organization called Students for America – that Ralph Reed had just started out for those who may not know Ralph Reed was had headed up Christian Coalition for many years and he does head up the Faith and Freedom Coalition effort nationwide so i went to an organizational conference there in uh, the dc area for a couple of weeks i interned with morton blackwell of uh, leadership institute uh, if you see campus reform stuff which you see a whole lot that's a leadership institute effort you're that's really Gain ground on campuses to this day. But I got involved at that level and, and finished college. Uh, in 1992, I'm sitting in Mike Pence's office. He was running the Indiana Policy Review. And I had gotten acquainted with Mike because he, li- at the time, lived on the south side of Indianapolis, which is where I grew up. He was at the time going to the Catholic Church that I grew up in as a young kid. And uh, so we had made a connection. And I was just telling him, you know, I had this passion and desire to get involved so he introduced me to a guy named George Whitwer, who was running a state-led campaign to get state legislators again on an economic conservative basis and I ran that organization then ran his uh, campaign for governor for the 96 cycle so I kind of really quickly got in after college I've been doing politics ever since then uh, almost entirely for the last uh, nearly 30 years on a full-time basis After I ran that gubernatorial campaign. Let me ask you a question, uh, Jim, with so
0: many things that you could have done that were in front of you. And as a person of, you know, really deep and growing faith at the time, what led you toward um, such a focus on politics?
1: I really felt a passion before the Lord to be able to do that. And, And I just, you know, I don't, I don't, share it too deeply because I don't want it to sound weird, but I just, when I was in college, I really had this sense that the Lord wanted me to get involved in that stuff in some way or another. And so I kind of kept that in the back of my mind, getting, being involved on campus with political stuff and in the, in that area, in the community in Bloomington, Indiana, and around the state. But so I just kind of waited and just opportunities started coming their way. And it, I kind of, fell into it in it, in a sense. So I really felt the Lord led me in that. And, you know, right after I ran that gubernatorial campaign, interestingly, and this kind of laid the foundation for me, I worked for a guy named uh, Bill Smith at Indiana Family Institute. And you mentioned I ran Colorado Family Institute here in Colorado. I, um, th- th- it was a similarly focused on the Family Aligned Family Policy Council. Bill Smith was, who, who later became Mike Pence's chief of staff when he was in Congress and is one of Mike's top political advisors, maybe the top political advisor, even to this day, Bill uh, laid a foundation for me to understand what a Christian needs to be. He always told me this, he said, you know, if you're going to get involved in the political realm as a Christian, you actually have to learn to do things better than others because you can't take shortcuts where you break moral principles where you act in a corrupt manner to get things done at any cost. You actually have to do it in a way that honors the Lord. And it was a great learning experience for me that laid the foundation for all that I've been doing since, because I've, uh, don't get me wrong. I fight in the political realm. It is necessary in the political realm to fight against your opponents in a way to win, not just only to, uh, you know, make sure people see your Christian character. Well, they got to see that absolutely. But you also have to win if you want to get anything positive done in this culture. So that's um, you know that I was really imbued in that for many years, and it's really helped me along the way to have that perspective because there are serious issues in this country all the time. And we are particularly at this moment, uh, after a major political election, you know, we're in a crisis situation in this country. It doesn't matter whether it's a Republican or Democrat that gets elected, because honestly, God's not behind Republicans or Democrats. He's behind truth. And we need to assert that truth in culture. So it's a real challenge, but that's kind of how I got into that and, and how I was influenced.
0: You know, that's interesting, right? You have to, you know, in that environment where you can just be, Um, I mean, everybody kind of sees the media today. You know, I think this is something a lot of us are living out, maybe not as such a scale as being right there in the, you know, the heart of the seat of government in Washington, D.C. What are some of the things, if you look over that 30 years of politics, that you have learned when people come up to you that are outside of politics that you share about, hey, how do you walk into an environment in partnership with God and actually stand up for what you believe in, in a way that builds relationships, builds bridges versus, you know, creates division and wedges.
1: Well, so the first thing that I think any Christian, that, like there are a lot of Christians that'll come to me, they want to run for an office, for example. Yeah. And that's kind of the the extreme end of involvement that you're talking about, but it'll help illustrate some of what I think answers your question If you're going to run for a political office, you had better understand that everything you're concerned with that you see in culture, most of it's very real. But the problem is you're going to walk into a situation where people are literally going to lie to you. I mean, let's just be honest with it. The vast majority of people that get involved in politics They just lie. Now that lie takes on various forms. Sometimes it's the subtle, Hey, you just kind of got to go along to get along type. And then then there's the other that says, Hey, we're going to support you. We're going to help you. And they're undermining you all the time. You have to understand that you need to be centered in truth yourself. So what I tell people get involved in politics. And I've run two different congressional offices. You're talking about a staff of around 14 to 18 people. Typically, they're usually young people that many of whom haven't gotten into their thirties or they're barely into their thirties. And I always tell them whether they're Christians or not, and most of them were thankfully, but I would tell them, you need to read a proverb a day because wisdom Mm. is the key ingredient to being a Christian in politics, but also getting things done. And I always tell them, you know, there's 31 chapters of Proverbs. And I tell the guys, you know, here's the deal. You only got to read the one focused on women once every other month. So you're good there. But the wisdom of the Proverbs is critical. And I don't think most Christians understand Proverbs, by the way, they read it in kind of a merely devotional way. They don't understand. There's some serious principles here where you're gonna have to oppose bad ideas. You have to oppose fools. In fact, we think fools are these people that are totally failing in life. And we don't understand that we've had foolish presidents. We have foolish congressmen to this day. You have foolish state legislators. They seem really sharp. They seem in control and empower. And the only way to break through that is to understand wisdom. And so um, I always tell uh, people, I'll have people ask me to help them because they want to make a congressional run. I get that request quite a bit. And I always tell them, especially if they're elected, I say, listen, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go up there. And and by the way, this are Republicans usually because I work in the Republican end of things you're going to get up there and all the Republican leaders are going to tell you what a wonderful person you are, all the great things you're going to do. You just need to do these things so that you can set yourself up to have more influence. And almost without exception, that advice is designed to get these people aligned in to the way that Republican leadership wants to do things, which candidly is not helping us. So you got to go in with determination. You have to be centered in truth yourself And then you have to be determined to pay the price for uh, doing the right thing because it always, almost always will run against the grain of what's happening, whether it's in D.C. or your state capital. And it's a major challenge. Most people fail. I've been telling people lately, this is going to seem really harsh. You talk about so you don't seem harsh. and what? Well, to be candid, and this is kind of the principle behind my Against Nice podcast, we got to stop being nice. There is no command in Scripture to be nice. But kindness always is attractive, but it always has opposition come against it. Jesus was uh, gentle to the broken reed, but he called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. This interaction happens in politics. So So how do you define
0: the difference between kind and nice, Jim? So this way. If you
1: look at the definition of nice in the in the dictionary, excuse me, if you look at the definition of, kind, of niceness, it's what's pleasing to me, what's acceptable to me. It's a very subjective concept, nice is. And I'm not saying there's no place for niceness in anywhere, but if our main goal is to be nice, we will almost always do the wrong things. If we want to be known as a nice person, ultimately, at the end of the day, that's something that that person that wants to be nice feels is good for them. There's a, I've I saw a bumper sticker now, uh, or for years, I've seen this. It says mean people suck. And what's interesting about that is the determination of the person who made up that concept is that we want, we want everybody to be nice basically. And if you're not nice to me, then you suck. Well, you're just doing the very thing that you're saying you're trying to inculcate in society. Kindness takes a totally different approach to things. In fact, in Micah 6.8, where God says to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That word that— So do justice. Love, do justice, to love kindness.
0: Love and kindness walk hum- and walk humbly. Love kind-
1: yeah. So that word for love kindness, and it comes out as loving kindness sometimes, various translations. That Hebrew word is chesed. Chesed is a, a critical word in Old Testament scripture, because it really actually is the, it expresses something in the character of God, which is to always have the goodness of others in mind without taking away the necessity if you're not being good, there's a consequence to that. So God's loving kindness towards us is such that his desire is for us to come to him, right? But he will never have us come to him, and he will also never, once we've come to him, allow us to stay in a bad state of moral impurity, of bad and unwise actions. He's always correcting that us in the same way. So kindness this is the best example I can give no parent who doesn't discipline their child can be considered kind at all because they're not kind to their children, but no child being disciplined thinks it's very nice.
0: So yeah, here's what's running through my mind uh, in this context, politics, or even in business, when we care more about how somebody feels about us versus how much do we actually care about that person? That almost seems to be the differentiator for me because If I want everybody to like me and just be nice, I might not say what actually needs to be said. I think we always need to say the truth, but the truth in love and humility, like you mentioned, because I remember a guy who was a mentor of mine and uh, I was doing well, I was in a management role at a fortune 100 uh, company and things were going from my perspective really, really well. And he came up and he gave me some feedback though. And he said, John, I got to tell you something. There's two things that are confusing me. He goes, A, you're a people pleaser and you're trying to make everybody feel good all the time. Mm -hmm. But people that you're doing better than, the way that you come across, your tone, your body language, they all think that you're really arrogant, the guys that are not on your team. And you're going to have some real problems working with them. And he goes, I think this, I don't know what this is rooted in, but it's something we need to do some mentorship on. Yeah. Right. A, that you're, you're, you know, people think you're arrogant and I wanted to be well-liked, right. And you're a people pleaser and you don't know how to say no. And you're going to stress your team out. Well, that was hard for me to hear. And I didn't like hearing it, but it was the best thing he could have ever said to me because I needed to hear it. So was it nice the way he said, and I tell you the way he said it also wasn't nice. He's, this guy's a Southie (laughs) from Boston. And there was a lot of colorful language when we were having this conversation. But I got to tell you, looking back on that moment, though, it was one of the kindest things because for me, it started creating uh, some self-awareness as I was transitioning into a real leadership role inside of a company. It was stuff I needed to hear. And if he hadn't told me that and never given me that feedback, I would have wondered why my career stalled, why maybe I was the one that got let go later on. And I would have brought that into my next company where it might have haunted me there. So does that make sense? No,
1: actually, what's interesting is he was asking you to do what he was doing, right? I mean, ultimately, he was trying to example it to you by doing what he did. And if you did what he did with others, the risk is people think that when your boss in that example did what he did, some people think that that's arrogant. And all it is, is giving direction, giving wisdom, helping people to understand where they're at. Kindness is, again, it's all about the good of others. Mm -hmm. So when there's a situation where you need to confront some issue, you've got to be direct and honest about it. And if you're truthful and honest with people about where things are, that's the only way you can move forward. Notice the humiliation or the humility is part of this whole process. So you come across arrogant when you uh, don't confront what's real. It happens in the process, but sometimes it happens after the process. It's like you're considered to know what you're thought of to be a know-it-all when you won't point out what's really there. There's a great example of this in Zig Ziglar. I really am a big fan of Zig Ziglar for sales training. The key fundamental actually principle of his sales philosophy was if you give Enough people, what they want and need, you'll get what you want to need. See, we turn that around. Some salespeople are just out to get what they want to need, and they want to make a lot of money. Well, the way you do that is through the gold rule, basically, where you you get people to a place that meets their goals and desires and what they want to get to happen. But that process requires truth. Zig Ziglar also said, people think he can sell anything. He says, I can't sell anything that's not valuable to someone else. I just can't do that. So this is why this kindness principle is so important, because we're always looking to the benefit of others before the benefit of ourselves. But to get there, you have to be supremely honest about what's happening. You need to be open and forthright. You don't hide anything, you got to expose what's really there. That's a hard balance sometimes, because you can also be arrogant on the other side in the exposing, because then it's easy to come to the conclusion that like people that have a prophetic gift in their lives of some sort, you know, or the revealing thing, they just love revealing stuff, you know, and that's also that's arrogant on the other side of it, because yeah, like those
0: people that want to, you know, say, well, you know, it needed to be said, I have to give those feedback, those people that are just constantly trying to give feedback to everybody around them. And Mm -hmm. what you do is you distance each other. And you know, what? I remember John Maxwell once said that, you know what, you have to connect before you pull. So this guy that gave me this feedback I'd been working for for two years when he gave me that feedback, even though he was rough around the edges, I know the guy cared about me. He cared about my success. He cared about mm-hmm. the organization's success. And I yeah. saw him do this with everybody around him. This was not him singling me out. As a matter of fact, when he finally did this, I realized that this is him actually seeing my potential or he wouldn't even be giving me the feedback. So the principles here, right, that I'm hearing is uh, is humility. So we're mm-hmm. making it not about us. Because right. if I want to go correct you, to make me look better or to be self-righteous or, right. That's not going to go over well. But if I know that you care, you care about me, you're doing it in love, right. You're focusing on maybe the facts of the situation. Like you said before, all these situations. And I think this is why it's so important to be grounded in scripture. And, you know, there's not a lot of, people I know that are like deeply grounded in scripture. Like when you point to a position, whether it's marriage or whatever it is, right. Where they can actually see yeah, how this is what God thinks about it. And here's why. Yeah. So I like, you know, so kindness is doing the right thing in the right way for the right reasons.
1: And for the benefit of others. And for the
0: benefit of others. And that does not always sound nice in the moment, but it could be the best thing for somebody else. And And we should be seeking actually that kind of conversation back to us also, right? No, absolutely. Listen to express kindness
1: will for the manager cause them to have to fire someone from time to time. My Mm -hmm. dad was a very successful businessman at his peak he had a company that was a burger chef and then a hardy's franchisee my dad at his height had 103 burger chef restaurants in indiana ohio kentucky and west virginia and he rose up through that right he learned along the way and then got to leadership position i ran one of his stores for a couple of years this is one of these detours away from politics that i had And very successfully, because I just listened to him. I decided, okay, whatever my dad says, he knows what the heck he's doing. The guy who was the regional manager over me as well was fantastic. He knew what was going on. My dad told me something that was really profound. And if you meditate on it, uh, it would make anyone a successful manager. He said, you know, the job of a manager is to give people the tools they need to be successful. It's not to tell people what to do and you do do that and that's part of the process obviously because you're ultimately responsible but the key to success in management is to give your employees tools to be successful themselves because that's how the whole organization becomes successful. He he added to that and he said to me, "You know, whenever I would have a problem with some employee, And by the way, when you think of a fast food restaurant, it's fast moving, it's intense, you get busy times, there are these things coming at you that you can't quickly get through and you got to make good decisions. He said, whenever I'd have a problem with an employee, before I took any action, he'd back up himself and say, is there something I'm doing that caused this problem? Now, he didn't do that to say not to fire anyone, because even if he knew that that person had to be fired because they truly did something bad, then he needed to ask himself questions like, is my hiring practice bad? Did this person, even though they did something horrible, was I putting the kind of pressure on them that wasn't fair to them? And so that would give him insight to try to figure out, okay, what are the steps I need to take not only to deal with this situation, but to make sure that this situation doesn't come up again in in the future. My dad was one of the most humble, thoughtful of others, person kind people, that I ever knew. He passed away in 2013. He's one of the most kind people I ever knew. And there were times that people really didn't like his personality that would happen, but he was one of the kindest thoughtful people of others that I ever met because that's the way he thought about what he
0: did. And that's what we need to do. Yeah. What I'm hearing in there is something I think we can take away from that is your, it sounds like your dad approached every situation from a place of curiosity and that I want to learn Versus a mindset of judgment and criticism. Right. Because if, you know what, if we're a manager and somebody does something wrong and we know that our boss is not going to be happy with us, mm-hmm. it's pretty easy to just roll that downhill, get upset and dress somebody down. Yeah. Or we go like your dad did and you say, okay, I'm I'm in judgment mode. I'm in critical mode. And sometimes working on our, our identity in Christ is a huge key to being able to, I think, make this transition from judgment to curiosity. And if you guys listening can just hear that one thing, how Jim's dad operated and approach these situations, stand on your principles. You might have to let somebody go, but understand as much about that as possible can make a powerful shift on, on how you're just working with everybody in your life.
1: And by the way, so I took that to heart I needed those two years working for my dad and my store was extremely successful. I had a store in Shelbyville, Indiana that I was running. It was way off the interstate. There were two stores in town. One was right on the interstate and one was about three miles off the interstate. And that's that second one that I ran. And I did more in sales than that one right on the interstate. Uh, So anyway, I I, I, making about 72,000 a month. At that store this is back in the mid 90s 72,000 a month by the time i left is almost 100,000 hundred thousand a month that we were doing and it's because and just to I clarify that's pre- not what you were yeah.
0: making that's the gross income no, from no, the no, store no. right that's yeah. gross
1: yeah. income from the store yeah yeah i wish i were but uh, <laughs> so and, and i was making about fifty thousand dollars at the time it wasn't great but it wasn't bad uh, a little more than 50 but anyway so i really got a lot of success in that i needed those two years to implant in me more firmly what my dad had been teaching me for years Mm. by putting it into practice. So I get into the political realm and I just fast forward to 2006, I'm running a marriage amendment effort in Colorado. And by that time, when I was running political efforts, I would always tell people, listen, there are going to be two times you're going to want to walk off this job because you're going to be so angry at me. And here's the reason why, because I'm going to tell you, do what I say to do and don't question it because I got nine months. You know, now we're compacting a process, right? It's not this long-term management process where we're, you know, we're just going to keep going over years. We're going to keep building and growing. No, I am mean, you're going to win or lose in nine months. And I'll tell people, you just got to do what I tell you to do. Be quiet about it. You're going to be angry when I do that because I'm going to insist upon it because I, I don't have any time. But I always said, I promise, though, if you stick it out, I'm gonna make sure you understand the wisdom because I want you to be able to move forward with this. And we were successful. We passed that marriage amendment in a bad year. It should never have passed. We were outspent six to one. Had I not learned from my father these biblical principles, frankly, that he had. Again, kindness, he thought of others. But I also told these people, I would always encourage them, you need to learn humiliation. This is another major principle in politics, and I think in management, in general, of whatever we're managing, humiliation. Now, you, you most people think, I humili- Why would we be humiliated? Well, it's fundamental to humility in general, because here's the deal: you're going to make a mistake, something bad's going to happen in the process. It's just going to. You're human beings. If you are willing to be humiliated you will immediately get to the solution rather than hemming and hawing and hedging and not telling people what you did wrong. The quicker you get to what right. the problem no, making is. Making excuses, not to taking
0: ownership. Right. Exactly. That's a big thing I see with a lot of people is, you know what, they don't take ownership. They, they don't. Guess what? I am the leader and that is my team and my team did screw up, but guess what? I'm going to own it. And we start, if you can start from that place of personal responsibility for outcomes even if there was all these external factors. I tell you what, if you can be a person like that, you will never uh, lack for employment. How's that? That's right. Oh, no, absolutely.
1: And and in fact, you will find yourself increasing in your responsibility and thus your income if you do that as well. Because if you could be trusted, it it is far more powerful to be a, a person who's willing to accept the mistakes they made than it is to hide it so no one knows and they think that you're successful. That is a powerful, powerful tool. And it's hard because you will take a downturn if you make a mistake in some situations. You gotta be willing, this is where another aspect of the humiliation of it. You may have made a mistake that costs a lot of money to your company. But uh, you, and so that may shoot you down, may cause you to get fired, you never know. But that opens up doors of opportunities for other good things moving up.
0: So I got a story for you. I'll, I'll never forget this talk. This is a story of complete humiliation. So I got out of the Navy. I've been a fighter pilot and I was not comfortable in the business environment. Just kind of, my whole identity was, you know, Navy centric, pilot centric. And I was working at a startup data mining software company and um, I get hired for head of sales. I'm like, what this, I'll take the pay and I'll take the title, but what is this guy thinking? Well, we get a meeting with one of the biggest companies in our area. And the night before the meeting, our CEO goes, John, uh, it's your meeting. You're going to run it, you know, prepare the deck and everything. I'm leaving to go home. He threw me in the deep end. I didn't know what to do. I did my best, but I show up the next morning. I'll never forget this, Jim. I'm sitting in this conference room. It's in the winter in Minnesota. I'm staring at this wood paneled walls. All these guys who I'm sitting across from have been in the Wall Street Journal on the cover of Fast Company recently. And the room smelled like coffee. And I start talking. I literally start stuttering. I'd never been so nervous in my life. I'm like, come on, man. I've been in combat. And I start uh, like choking on my words. So I start to like throw up in the back of my throat. And the only thing I have in front of me is hot coffee. So I take a sip of hot coffee, which now makes it worse. And now I have literally have a coughing attack. And our CEO who hired me reaches over to my, my presentation book and closes it in front of all these three guys. Their CEO, CFO, and yeah. chief Knuckle officer. And he takes over the meeting. And I'm sitting there going, okay, I've been here for two months. What am I going to do next? What am I going to tell my wife? <laughs> I was literally absolutely humiliated. Yeah. And we're walking, we leave the meeting. We're walking out to the car. I couldn't even make eye contact with this guy. Yeah. His name's Tim. And we sit in the car. He goes, what happened? And I said, I choked. I said, I don't even know what to say. I, you know, you put your trust to me and I didn't say I wasn't ready. You should have prepared me. I mean, that didn't fly when, you know, when you came from the military. And I'm just staring out the window. I still couldn't look at him. He goes, well, he goes, let me tell you what what the problem was. He goes, John, you were so focused on you and trying to impress them and and talk about how great our company was. Your focus wasn't about them and how we serve them and add value. And if that even exists, then we can have a conversation about how we might possibly work together. And then he says, he goes, look at me. I looked over. I go, he goes, next time, I know you're going to knock it out of the park. 'm like I'm like what say what He goes, yeah he goes there's no way I'm firing now I think I just spent a million dollars on your training yeah which is true because we never got we never got any business with that company it was that yeah. much of a train wreck right and I gotta tell you though that was humiliating but then I got feedback mm-hmm. in a way that somebody in that moment, that was an inflection point in my business career because somebody else saw something in me that I didn't see in myself at the time. They called it out. They gave me another opportunity. We had a great debrief. But I got to tell you, sometimes going through something that's really embarrassing and humiliating, but you you can go through it in a way that actually, that propels you forward versus defines you, or maybe proves a negative narrative that we might have in our head. And I think a big part of this, I think that a lot of people struggle with is our whole life, all the stuff that we've led into our head, right? Our experiences, what people said to us has formed this identity. And I think there's oftentimes we've let lies in that we've accepted as truths. And there's a different person we see in the mirror than the person God sees when he looks down at us who created us. Yeah. And to the point that we can start to close that gap, all of a sudden we go through life and realize that life doesn't happen to us. It happens for us. Mm-hmm. And that is a huge difference. And I think being able to move forward in a principled way and make a positive difference regardless of our environment.
1: Yeah. I'm going to tell you, this is interesting. <laughs> My dad, I mean, he had a huge company, okay? He had 4,000 employees at his peak, right? Wow. And I, I never thought I could get or meet my dad's expectations. But all along the way, he would spend literally, when I was in college, so I started out at Indiana University in Bloomington. But I was there for two years. The last two years, actually two and a half, because I did a couple things that delayed my uh, leaving college, but I was living at home with my parents and on the weekends, my dad would be writing out bills doing work and we would sit there and we'd talk. And even in the evenings, we'd talk for hours. He was instilling in me these principles constantly, but I never thought there's no way I can reach my dad's level. Well, just before he died, the couple of years before he died, I'm working on Capitol Hill uh, as a chief of staff for a congressman. My dad's constantly asking me questions Mm. about DC. Now, That was huge because my dad had so much knowledge. He paid so much attention to things. He had instilled all that in me. It was playing out and he was incredibly proud of it. It was obvious just from our discussion that did so much for me. I was in my forties, you know, (laughs) and, and getting that feedback. But um, if we're willing, mentorship is a, a key, a key thing. I have had many people work in campaigns for me and in the congressional office. So many of them still come to me today for advice and help because I learned a long time ago, the value of mentorship and how it helped me Mm. and, and relating that to what the story you were just talking about, I have hired people who weren't everything I wanted them to be, but they were loyal. They were teachable and they were passionate about being involved in the effort that I was doing. You know, I worked for Thomas Massey. He's of Kentucky. He's a libertarian minded and he'd say constitutionalist uh, representative. I mean, he's, he's a no vote often on things because of stupid stuff happening in DC. He, but he is, I mean, he's got fanboys all throughout the Ron Paul youth movement, for example, those people wanted to work for him. You get one of those people in, who also had some skills, but they might not have been already there. I could teach them and mold them into going where they needed because my focus was exactly like your boss that you mentioned to you. He, it was a failure. You failed big time. I did. According to the story I'm hearing. And yet he's like, okay, you're going to knock it out of the ballpark next time because we're going to take this and you're going to learn it. And that is so key. To and I know he wasn't success.
0: disappointed. I know he was disappointed. This wasn't like, oh, oh yeah. no big deal. Was well, a learning event. He's yeah. like, you know, the work and effort it took to even get that meeting, and then the trust that he gave me. Yeah, he was expecting me to show up. Yeah, uh, as the person he was expecting, the person that I actually ended up becoming. But he, he, th- he thought I was a little farther on that evolutionary yeah, scale. Yeah. So yeah, no, that was rough. You know, to also let somebody down who had given you that trust too, right? It kind of right. amplified it from how I felt inside. But then you know what? When you gave me that chance, I doubled down. I would have run through a brick wall for that guy.
1: Yeah. And, and by the way, in my mind, this gets us to something that you and I have talked about before. It gets into the concept of leadership. I mean, what really is leadership? So I worked to focus on the family, as you mentioned. I worked for Dr. Dobson, in the public policy department there for a few years. And... Uh, one of the board members of Focus on the Family at the time was a guy named Bob Beal. I think you've had him mm-hmm. on your broadcast yep. mm-hmm. before. Bob uh, consults nonprofits and for-profit companies to really build uh, their organization and go in going the right direction. He's got a definition of leadership. And I was introduced to Bob Beal, not directly, but indirectly through his books by Bill Smith when I was working at Indian Family Institute that I talked about earlier. And I, it was radically transformative for me. So he gave a definition of leadership that I have used and meditated upon for years. And it's this, he says, leadership is knowing what to do next, knowing why that's important and knowing how to bring appropriate resources to bear on the problem at hand. Now, what's interesting is that's the definition of it. Mm -hmm. You have to get mentored into it. You have to have experience to go into it because it takes wisdom to know what to do next. It takes experience in your industry, in what you're doing to get that perspective. Knowing what to do next is seeing the big picture and putting it into a broader context. Knowing why that's important is actually inserting the what to do next into the context of the situation you're in. But I think that, and those two are critical tools that I think takes time and experiences like the one you express for yourself and wisdom. But this third one is the really important one, in my opinion, knowing how to bring appropriate resources to bear on the problem at hand. That's entirely an experience thing. And you can only get there by seeing something happen. You know, someone might be listening to you and they're in their 20s and they've got vim and vigor. And they're ready to go. I was when I was getting involved in politics in my mid 20s. And I knew some decent stuff up to the time I started to get involved. I learned a lot, and I thought I was ready to go. I needed mentors to take me along the way. But once I went through enough experiences, now I feel confident I can bring anything to bear. I've got to – I'll tell you a quick story on that. When I worked with Tim camp from Kansas from 2011 to 14, 2010, late 2010 to 14, really – I got to know a guy named Paul Teller. He's working in the vice president's office now. He was running, he was the executive director of the Republican Study Committee. So we were, he and I were working things as a post Tea Party movement where we needed to get that energy moving forward. So I, I, he and I would do stuff together. He would see things I could do on this bringing appropriate resources to bear on the problem at hand. I went to work for Thomas Massey later on, a few years later. And, uh, we're going to this event and Thomas, uh, gets up to this VIP place and none of we, I had one other staffer with me. They were not letting us up and you need a staffer with your Congressman. Cause if something happens, someone's got to follow up. Mm. So Thomas goes on up. He, he sees Paul Teller up there who at that time was working for Ted Cruz. And Thomas says, Hey, where's Jim? And, uh, Thomas says, ah, he got stuck down at the place. So he might not be able to be up. And Paul says, oh, no, no, he'll be up. (laughs) And and I did. I I got through the situation. You know, those things can be highly restrictive. I just knew how to work it because my number one goal was to make sure someone was with Thomas. You know, you get to, and I was in my 40s then, late 40s. I've been doing politics for some time. It takes experience to figure out what you need to do. And uh, Paul had seen it from over and over again. But that's our goal in life. So I, I, everyone who wants to be a great leader, I think Bob Beal's definition is the best. It has served me so well. Again, you got to be humble. You got to be lear- a learner. But meditate on knowing what to do next, knowing why that's important, and knowing how to bring appropriate resources to bear on the problem at hand. You got to meditate on all three. You got to learn what they are. You need to write down uh, things you learn about it along the way. I've taken notes of this mm-hmm. along the way that's how we get things done. So back to this whole thing of Christian leadership in these key areas of life, Christians need to be great at what they do. So many Christians have this concept, well, I'm just going to pray and I'm going to trust God. Okay, well, you should. You should definitely do both of those things. Absolutely. But you got to actually perform so that he can work those things out. When you trust in God, and and most people sit around and wait for God to do something rather than do something. My prayers have turned in through most of my life in politics. My prayers have focused on Lord bless the work of my hands. And he can only bless it. If you're going to follow his principles, Micah six, eight reading Proverbs, but do the work and then learn along the way. And that's how we get things done. I think.
0: Yeah. And I, I you know, I think it's, what gives us influence, especially in, you know, outside of the church walls, whether it's government yeah. or business or whatever it happens to be, is excellence. If I go in yeah. and I want to have influence over a CEO who's not a believer, and them to listen to me and and want to know my opinion or be in relationship to me, and they but they think my business is run sloppy, I don't do good work. The grammar of my emails is sketchy because I just, you know, <laughs> yeah. ripped it out. Seriously, all these yeah. things get, so I think that standard of excellence and having that responsibility, I, I see, well, how about this? A friend of mine started, there's an industry that really has a mindset that's really adversarial to people of faith. And so he's been working with young people coming out of uh, university an internship program and part of the Mm -hmm. foundational work, he goes, for you to have a kingdom influence in this industry and for you to get hired because this is one of the most competitive internship programs, you have to, your work product, your work ethic and who you are as a person, how you treat and interact with other people has to be the best of the best. And he, over the last three years, a hundred percent of their interns have gotten a job offer which is really outside the norm for this industry. And now, basically, you have people coming into this industry from the ground up who were really rooted. And so I hope people really hear that. When you're working with people and you're holding them accountable to a standard of excellence, right? Our work, it's a form of worship to the Lord. It is. And by the way, this is one of the big reasons that um,
1: the rancor and the partisanship that we see in politics right now has gone so off the rails because Christians are not in that manner, light and salt to the earth. I want to show you something for those that are not looking on video. You and I are recording this on video, but do you see this uh, keychain I have? It says commitment to excellence, mm-hmm. right? 1984. I had just gotten to Indiana university. I was in a college church there and one of the people in the church, a little bit older than I was a lady. She saw me not being excellent. She bought me that very keychain. I've kept it ever since. This is 1984. Okay. That
0: wasn't nice because of her. She,
1: yeah. Well, so, <laughs> so this is this, this is what happened. So it was very, it was very embarrassing for me. So she says, Hey, let's take a walk. And so we went to this one area, common area in downtown Bloomington, Indiana. And she sat down next to me on a curb somewhere. I still remember it. And she's like Jim. She was felt really harsh to be candid. She's like Jim, you know, you're so lackadaisical in what you do. You don't even seem to care. But you got so much talent and ability. So anyway, you need to be excellent. You need to stop being. And she just she kind of laid into me in a kind in a kind way. I mean, it was, it wasn't a screaming yelling thing. It was just you know you're just so below. You're you you do not even seem to be serious about anything. It was a, it was humiliating to be candid. And I thought I was the stuff, man. I had been a Christian at that time for about three and a half years, and I was serious about the Lord. I was reading the Bible every day. I was very I wanted to follow Christ in a significant way. And she's just reaming me a little bit, or felt like reaming. But I've kept that ever since, and and I I know that there have been times that I've failed on the excellent scale from that moment on but I never forgot that lesson to this day I never replaced that keychain once because it's a reminder that uh, we do have to be serious and and I want to say this it really concerns me when I watch the church today I don't see excellence I love the 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 Christian satire site Babylon B I love how they regularly make fun of the smoke machine in the worship service, you know, it's like, and, uh, or, or there was one uh, the other day that I saw where they said, church praise for glory of God to come down thousands killed (laughs) because, because they don't understand what all this really means. In fact, they make a pretense of it. I think that the church by and large makes a pretense of affecting our culture. You've got these big churches that are very serious in what they do. And to be candid, they're not, they're not interacting with culture in a way that they need. I'll tell you this, this will seem really harsh, maybe, but I spent most of eight years in Washington, DC. I know or am acquainted with most Republican congressmen, the ones who put themselves out as born again believers. I have to tell you, it, this is going to sound really harsh, but most of them vote like Satan and I'm going to tell you why. What concerns me is they get, just like I described earlier, you walk up, everyone tells you how great you are, how wonderful you are. And they're really just trying to get you to buy into the system. Well, they keep voting into the system. We are $27 trillion in debt in this country. Then in, in the year 1999 and 2000, the la, or 2000, 2001, excuse me, the last year, of the Clinton administration, the first year of the Bush administration, the Office of Management and Budget, both times were projecting that somewhere between 2011 and 2013, we would pay off the national debt. And in fact, a part of that, those reports were stating, so we gotta figure out, because if we're gonna be paying off the national debt because of so much uh, surplus spending, which we were already in surplus at the end of the Clinton administration, with all this surplus spending and we got these 30 year bills t bills but yeah we we can't pay them off early cuz we got to pay out the rest of the interest on that for the investors they were talking about how are we going to do this well by the time we got to that time period we were already about 10 11 trillion dollars in debt 2013 14 here we are today 27 trillion dollars in debt there's no leadership. You've got at least half of the Republican caucus in Congress put themselves out in one way or another as Christians. So where in the Bible does it allow you to vote for more debt? Well, you know, we got these challenges. We got No, God doesn't say what your challenge, here's my challenge. Again, it goes to leadership, knowing what to do next, knowing why that's important, knowing how to bring appropriate resources to bear on the problem at hand. Doing justice, loving kindness, walking humbly with your God. None of those prescriptions describe what's happening in Washington, D.C., because we lack leadership. We lack godly leadership, even amongst those who claim to know Christ. And that's got to change. So excellence is performing. It's not hoping and praying. It's not even praying, by the way. Your prayer isn't part of your excellence. You need to learn to be excellent in prayer. But that's not your prescription for excellence. Your prescription for excellence is be an excellent person in prayer and then get out and do the work that God commands. And we just don't do that in, enough mm-hmm. in the church. And it, it really concerns me. I I do this thing. I'm holding my thumb up like you're kind of trying to measure something without a ruler. Um, I do that to the church, and I, I'm not even convinced that 30% of the church is serious about these principles that God lays out of excellence. And we've got to change that.
0: Well, and that's why we're having this discussion and something that I've just felt in my heart is there is and there's evidence all over the place of an awakening inside the church. Because until mm-hmm. that happens, there's no way we're going to really influence culture or even have a revival. People talk about revival there's some things that have to be in place before revival happens. And that is the awakening in the church and everything Jim's talking about spilling from inside the body of Christ outside into culture. And so guess what? Everybody listening out there right now, think about just one small thing you can do today that just moves you a little bit closer to excellence, whether it's prayer Um, how you're interacting with colleagues at work, how you, how about this? How about you? How, how do you have a conversation with people who have different beliefs than you? I was convicted the other day, just walking. I heard something from a politician and it just set me off. And I'm just sitting here ranting about this person. (laughs) It was a woman. And then I was, you know, talking about her on the phone to someone I was talking to and God just like slapped me upside the back of the head. Um, this is not a person that by any means is a Christ follower at all. And he said, Hey, that's my daughter. And I love her. And why are you talking about her that way? I'm like, well, cause she's right. I am like, well, wait. Right. And so in my role here and, you know, sitting here in Denver, Colorado, I have brought it into my world to pray for that person. That is the best thing that I can do for somebody and say, hey, you know what, God, you have a plan. I have no idea what that person might have a role. Maybe they're like a Cyrus. Maybe they're like somebody that, that you're going to move off the playing board. Maybe they're someone they're going to pull into your, your family. It's going to be this amazing witness to you. But I have no idea what God's plans are. But what I can do for people that feel to me like they're out of alignment with what, what God's purpose is, is pray, not judge. And I got to tell you that for me, that I, I got to tell you, that was my habit, Jim. You know, and, um, and shifting into that has been a challenge. So, with that, so real quick, um, a yeah. little station identification, everybody. So, if you want to get in touch with Jim, first of all, it's politicsisn'tnice.com, Correct. and the podcast is against nice. You can find it on any podcast player. So, as we just kind of wrap up here, just everybody who's yeah. been listening to this awesome conversation, uh, thank you for sharing. What are just some final thoughts, Jim? You'd like to leave with everybody.
1: First of all, to meditate and study to be approved. By the way, Micah six eight. I just think, God, listen, it's these are the fundamental three things that God commands us, expects of us to do. To do justice, not to to acknowledge what justice is, but to or do talk justice. About it. That's right. To love kindness, or to love mercy, to show real kindness in this culture, and to walk humbly with your God. And there's a second thing though, too, and we've talked enough about Micah six, eight, I want to throw out Proverbs 14, 23 for people as well. It says in all labor, there's profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Mm. And we're not just talking about financial poverty here. We're talking about spiritual poverty and we're talking about cultural poverty. You know, you have to be determined to take the steps to make the difference. You got to walk out there and do what we're commanded to do. And you're going to fail along the way, but you got to keep doing it because that's what the Lord blesses. He doesn't bless your prayers. In fact, prayer really is about getting to know God better, understanding his character, learning about him, communing with him. All of that is necessary so that you have the right heart and spirit when you go out and actually attempt to do something. But you got to attempt to do. So I, I really feel that we, as far as revival, honestly, revival is entirely in his hands. But we do read in Scripture that when his people cried out to him for help, you read it in Judges. You read it in First Chronicles, what is it, 14.7, right? Uh, you know, if my people are called by my name. Mm -hmm. will humble themselves and pray. I will hear from on high and heal their land. And there's also a
0: precursor um, for that. If then is turn from their wicked ways. And you talk about turn from their wicked ways. Yes. Each one of us as individuals, the church organizations turning, right. And it could be pride. It could be self-sufficiency. It could be our attitude toward others are just, are we part of the problem? Do we walk around creating strife and division? Uh, that's so true.
1: And by the way, a pietism, you know, this ultra holiness type approach to the Christian life is not what God calls us to do. The sad reality is until you're in his presence, you're never going to be perfect. But First uh, Thessalonians says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. So pietism, which says I'm holy already, is a false way of thinking about things. What is important is to be on that constant process of sanctification. And by the way, sanctification isn't just in your moral character. That's the Supreme thing, but it's in this idea of excellence that we Mm. talked about earlier. And I think we need to be committed to that and we can have an impact anywhere. And we need to have an impact broadly in culture because excellent Christian people drove culture in the Western world, at least for centuries and then somehow along the way we gave it up. It's time to pick it back up and move forward. In all labor, there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty.
0: Well, Jim, thank you for your time. I found this entire conversation actually encouraging, uplifting. Hopefully everybody out there, you're saying, you know what? I am, in partnership with the Father, part of what's happening in this world, even if we might not understand it, but there are things that each one of us can do. And I, I believe in my heart that one person in partnership with the father doing excellent work, excellence is a standard, but grace is the word, I think, because you know what we need to, we're not always going to meet that standard, can accomplish anything. Yeah. And, and that's happening. So Jim, we need to have you back on. This was awesome. I know this is a little bit longer than our normal podcast. So everybody out there listening, we'll have Jim back on because I love our conversation, buddy. Keep rocking, keep knocking them alive out there. And I support what you're doing.
1: Well, thanks so much, John. I appreciate your friendship over all these years and I appreciate you, your willingness to have me on the podcast. Thanks.
0: Oh, anytime. See you brother.
1: Thanks.